So listen, we're going to begin today where we began last Sunday with an affirmation that I asked you to make last week. And in fact, I asked you to say these words to your neighbor last Sunday. Today, I just want you to say it out loud like you believe it or you mean it. It is this affirmation that says, I want to be a blessing. Remember you said that last week? I want to be a blessing. So let's say that out loud together. Both campuses, I want to be a Amen. I do too. I do too. And I believe that you want to be a blessing. I really do. And so we're learning about blessing from Abraham. This is week number three of our 12-week series where we're thinking together about the life and the family and the faith of the patriarch from Genesis, the man Abraham. Last Sunday, you will recall that we spent a fair amount of time talking about God's call on the life of Abraham. And we talked about the fact that he was called, God called him out of the Ur of the Chaldees. That's in ancient Mesopotamia, modern day Iraq in that region along the, ba- the or near uh, Babylon, along the Euphrates River that he was called out of the Ur of the Chaldees and that he was called to go into the land of Canaan. So the call of God upon Abraham's life was quite literally a call to a new land. But more than being a call to a new land, the call on Abraham's life was a call to a new life, a life in covenant with God. And we talked last week about this Abrahamic covenant and how that God called Abraham and entered into this relationship, this covenant relationship with him and the purpose of that covenant. We learned that the reason that God called Abraham into this covenant was so that Abraham would be a blessing. God called Abraham into a covenant relationship to make him a blessing. Remember there were two commands, two imperatives in chapter 12. One was go, go to a new land. The second was be a blessing. What God said was go be a blessing. So he called him to be a blessing. Now here's the point. That the goodness of God and the blessing of God in Abraham's life at the end of the day wasn't really about Abraham. I want to say this to you again. I want you to think about it. That the, the blessings that God poured into Abraham's life really weren't for Abraham so much. They weren't about Abraham so much as they were blessings in his life so that he could then pass those blessings on to others. Namely, that he could pass that blessing to the entire world. Now, what if we could all learn this lesson? What if we could learn the lesson that the blessings in our lives really aren't about us? If I asked you this question, if I said, has God blessed you? Has he say amen if he has? Sure, we would all say, yeah, God's blessed me. I mean, I don't have a perfect life and I've got my hangups like everybody and I struggle here and there. But listen, at the end of the day, God has been good to me. God has blessed me. What if we could learn the lesson that the blessings that God has given us are not for us or about us, they're for others. Here's the way I would say it, and I hope you'll jot it down somewhere. It is to say that we have been blessed in order to be a blessing. We have been blessed in order to be a blessing. And I just want to stop for a minute and say to each one of you, you are a blessing 
to me. I want you to know that. If you are not a blessing to anyone else in your life, and I'm sure you are to many other people, but if you are not a blessing to anybody else, I want you to know you are a blessing to me. And I want to tell you how and why you're a blessing. You know, we celebrate around here a lot. We celebrate salvations. We just celebrated three people coming to faith in Jesus this morning. And, and we ought to celebrate that. People are coming to faith all the time around here. We just celebrated 20 new families that joined Brookstone. We ought to celebrate that. We, we celebrate baptisms. And those are things we ought to celebrate. But I want you to know that the greatest um, evidence of blessing in our church is the phenomenal spiritual growth and development that is happening in so many lives across this congregation. You are growing as disciples of Jesus, and it blesses your pastor. I want you to know it. You hunger for the Word of God. You feel Bible study classes. You feel lift classes. A thousand of you who are adults gather weekly in homes throughout our community. To do what? To study the Word of God together and to learn to apply it to your lives. It blesses me to know that you want to grow in the Word. You demand of me that I stand here and preach the Word of God to you and nothing short of its truth, even if it's hard. You want to hear it, and that blesses me. You serve by the hundreds. You serve, and you do it with cheerfulness and with joy. You're humble, and you're kind, and you're gentle, and you value fellowship and unity, and you're loving. You give generously and cheerfully, can I just say it? You are a blessing to me. And I want you to know it. We didn't come to talk about you this morning. We came to talk about Abraham, but I just had to stop and say, what a blessing you are to me. Abraham was, in fact, a blessing. Last week, we were in chapter number 12, and we saw where he entered into the land of Canaan. God calls him from the earth into the land of Canaan. And in chapter 12, verse 5, he arrives there. Look at chapter, five verse, or chapter 12, verse 5. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance that they had get, gathered, and all the souls that they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan. And into the land of Canaan they came. So following the call of God, they arrive in this land where they're going to be a blessing to the whole earth. They immediately begin to be a witness even in that land. Verse number 6 says that Abram passed throughout the land into the, uh, under the place of Shechem under the plain of Moreh, and the Canaanite was in the land. Immediately walking by faith, Abram becomes a blessing to the pagans, the Canaanites of the land, who are worshiping false gods that are not gods at all. Gods that they carved out of wood and stone with their hands. And they're worshiping these things, and he begins to tell them to sing the praises of the one true God. And so he brings blessing to them by building altars to and proclaiming the name of of the Lord. The blessing begins immediately. Now, I think you'll find it interesting in chapter 12 and verse 10. We didn't read it last week, but if you read through uh, the end of the chapter from verse number 10, here's what you'll discover that Abram arrives in the land of Canaan, but he's not there for very long. He passes right through it, all the way to the south, out of the land of Canaan, and into Egypt. 
Look at verse number 10 of chapter 12. He goes down into Egypt. Why does he go to Egypt? Because there's a famine in the land of Canaan. So he goes down into Egypt to, to have food. He's going down to where Pharaoh reigns. And he says to his bride, verse 11, verse 12, he talks about how beautiful his wife Sarah or Sarai is. Do you remember how beautiful Sarah is according to the rabbis? Not the Bible, but the rabbis say that Sarah was so beautiful that every other woman in her presence looked like apes. Remember that? She's beautiful. And he says to her, you're so beautiful. If Pharaoh knows you're my wife, he'll kill me and take you to be his own wife, take you into his harem. So don't tell him you're my wife, please. Tell him you're my sister. Abraham lied. Now, I'm not preaching on lying today. and Some of you will be glad. But he tells the same lie again in chapter 20. And we're getting to chapter 20. Not today, but I'm going to preach on lying when we get there. And I'm not going to tell you what day it's going to be because some of you won't come. But he lies about Sarah's. This is my sister. Well, look at what happens in verse number 16. It says that Pharaoh entreated Abram well because of his his affection for Sarah. And so he gives to Abraham sheep, verse 16, and oxen, and and male donkeys, and men servants, and maid servants, and female donkeys, and uh, camels. Watch this. Abraham's wealth grows while he's in Egypt. And then look at verse 17. And the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Does this sound vaguely familiar to you at all? It's a, it's a foreshadowing in Abraham's life of what will happen to the nation of Israel in just a few generations. When they will go to Egypt, again, the entire nation will go to Egypt. Why? Because of a famine in the land. And while they're there, what will God do in Egypt? He will plague Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And so Pharaoh will send them out of the land. And when they leave, what will they leave with? All the wealth of the Egyptians. It's exactly what happens in in Abraham's life is what will ultimately happen in the nation's life. It's a foreshadowing or a precursor, if you will, sort of a prototype of what will happen when the Jews are there for 400 years in captivity following the death of of Joseph. Well, chapter 13, they then make their way back into Canaan. The famine is over and they make their way back up into Canaan. Uh, Abraham is going to continue bringing blessing where he goes as he goes into Canaan. And specifically, here's what we're going to learn today. We're going to read the text in chapter 13, but here's what we're going to learn. That Abraham is going to bring blessing to his family in a season of conflict. Abraham is going to bring blessing to his family in a season of conflict related to his nephew, Lot. Now, before we read the text, let me ask you a question. Does anybody in the room know anything at all about conflict in family? Don't raise your hand. Maybe I should ask, could anybody in the room dare say, my family has never had any conflict, ever. We get along beautifully all the time. No, we can never say that. We all know what it is to experience the tension and the hurt and the, and the strain of conflict 
in our closest relationships. And if we all experience it, then in that conflict, somebody needs to bring blessing. And remember, you've been blessed to be a blessing. So let's read about it, and then we're going to learn some some truths to apply to our lives. I'm in chapter 13, verse 1. It says, And Abram went up out of Egypt, and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him, into the south, that is, into the south of Canaan. And Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. And he went on in his journeys from the south, even to Bethel, unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, unto the place of the altar, which he had made there at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. And Lot, verse 5 says, Lot also, which went with Abram, he had many flocks and herds and tents as well. And the land was not able to bear them so that they might dwell together, for their substance was great, so that they could not dwell together. And there was a strife between the herdsmen of Abram's cattle and the herdsmen of Lot's cattle. And the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled in the land as well. And so Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and you, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are brothers, we're family. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself, I pray, from me. If you will take the left hand, then I will go to the right. And if you will depart to the right, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all of the plain of Jordan. That's the Jordan Valley. He saw that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Even as the garden of the Lord. It looked like the garden of Eden. And it looked like the land of Egypt down by the Nile as you come unto Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan. And Lot journeyed east and they separated themselves one from another. And Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain. And he pitched his tent, that is Lot, uh, pitched his tent toward Sodom. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. One more verse, verse 18, please. Then Abram removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron or Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Now let's track their movements. In chapter number 13, they're leaving Egypt, coming back into the land of Israel. If you know that geography very well, and I apologize, I really should have brought a map to put on the screen for you, but if you can envision that geography, the the little nation of Israel lies along the shore of the Mediterranean Sea, and just below Israel is the Negev Desert, and then just below that is the country of Egypt. And so they had made their way all the way through the land, across the Negev, and into Egypt during the famine. Once Pharaoh sends them out, they come back out of Egypt, back up through the Negev, and the Bible says in verses 2 and 3, they come into the south. It means the southern tip of Israel. But they don't stop there. They continue north until they arrive at the place of Bethel. Bethel is the place where they had originally stopped when they entered the land, as the text tells us in verse number 3, where uh, Abraham had built this altar to the Lord. They go back 
to that location. It's about a 200-mile journey. It would have taken them a month to make this journey from Egypt back up to Bethel. Now, if you want to know where that is today, it's, it's near Jerusalem, modern Jerusalem. So it's in a little town called Beitian. If you want to look it up on a map, Beitian is ancient Bethel. It's 10 miles from Jerusalem, right in the Judean hills, in the heart of the land of Canaan. They begin to dwell there. Abraham, Lot, and all of their flocks and herds. And this is where the problem begins. Look at verse number 6. It says clearly that the land was not able to bear them. Verse 2 says that Abram had a lot of flocks and herds and camels and and cattle and that Lot was wealthy in his own right. Verse number 5, he had flocks and herds and tents so that the land, verse 6, was not able to bear them so that they might dwell together for their substance was great so that they could not dwell together. What happens is they, they, they begin to live in this one area and there's just not enough grazing land, there aren't enough water sources for all of Abraham's cattle and flocks and herds and camels and all of Lot's flocks and herds and sheep and goats and camel and cattles, uh, cattle. And then the text tells us that the Canaanite and the Perizzite, they're living in the land as well. And so all of these people congregated together and you can imagine their herds and their flocks and their sheep and their goats and their camels and it's just too crowded. There's not enough space for all of them. And so the Bible says in verse number seven that a strife erupts between the herdsmen of Lot's cattle and the herdsmen of Abram's cattle. The word strife means a dispute. The the tension begins to rise. They they begin to have conflict with each other. There's contentious fighting and arguing going on. I mean, you can imagine this, right? You, you get up in the morning, you work for Abram, you, you come out with your, your flock of sheep and goats and you go to the watering hole where you know the grass will be green and you get there and there's those stinking lot, men of lot. They've got their people there and their, their cattle there and their sheep and goats there. And you're like, go back over the hill. I claim this spot. And and then they're saying, no, you keep bringing your camels in here. And they're, they're getting in the way of all of our shit. You can just imagine the fighting, the conflict. And we've all been there. Not with sheep and cattle and goats probably. But we've all been there in our marriage. We've all been there in our relationships with other family members. Maybe with our kids or as our kids grow. Maybe with, don't raise your hand, but with in-laws maybe. And, I mean, we, we've all been in these moments where we have this tension. Now, our tension is not caused by not having enough grazing space, probably, but let me tell you what it is caused by. Two main sources of conflict in families. Number one is stress, and that's no surprise. We're stressed, but the stress can come from a lot of different sources. Maybe it's financial stress, right? So if you're, if you're living in a situation where there's more month at the end of the, in the, end of the money, and you're struggling to pay the bills, and maybe you think, hey, your, your spouse is a little too loose with the credit cards, or your, your spouse is spending more than they should, and that's making it, and you're, you've got this tension, you've got to stop that, and well, I needed this, and you're just going back and forth, and the tension and the stress just begins to rise. Maybe it doesn't have anything to do with money. Maybe it's just career stress and schedules are busy and, and the tension begins to rise. It could have uh, to do with many things that cause us to fight. 
Maybe it has to do with raising kids and one, one spouse believes this is what we ought to do in that situation and there's a conflict because another spouse says, no, we ought to handle it that way. And A lot of different things cause stress, but that's a source of family conflict. There's a second source, second common source. We see both of these in our counseling ministry all the time. The second one is unmet expectations. Unmet expectations could just be called disappointments. It's when we say things like, I just thought things would be different. I just thought you would be different. I just, you're not meeting my needs. And, and uh, you're, you're not, I, I don't like the way you're doing that. And so we have this expectation in a relationship, a marriage or some other relationship. And yet, it's not what we expected. We're disappointed. So those things of stress and disappointment, expectations, those things cause conflict. But you know what the Bible says? You know what James says really causes our conflicts? Look at, look at James chapter 4. They'll put it on the screens for us. He, he asks, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your own desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you don't have? You murder, you covet, you, you cannot obtain? You fight and you're at war with each other. And yet you have not because you ask not. He says, at the end of the day, here's why we have conflict. Because we want what we want. And we want it the way that we want it. And we want it when we want it. And it's our own demands that cause conflict on one side or the other. Sometimes on both sides. But we want what we want in the way that we want it. And so James makes it clear that the reason we have conflict in marriage and in other relationships it's simply because we're broken people with demands living among other broken people who can't always meet our demands. And we try to get satisfaction and happiness and the absence of conflict and perfect peace in a human perspective and we don't seek it from the Lord. And so therefore we don't find it. So here's the question, what do you do when that conflict arises? When you're in a family relationship and you have a conflict, how can you bring blessing into the midst of conflict? Well, Abraham shows us, and so I want to give you these principles quickly, jot them down. If you want to be a blessing, let's learn from Abraham's example. If you want to be a blessing in conflict and do this first thing, which is this. We see it in, in Lot and in Abraham's actions. When Lot was greedy, jot this down. When Lot was greedy, Abraham remained gracious. When Lot was greedy, Abraham remained gracious. Again, imagine this moment. Tempers are flaring in the field. Lot's herdsmen, Abraham's herdsmen, they're fighting over, over land and grazing areas and, 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 they're, and, and they're calling out to Lot, hey Lot, you got to do something about this. I don't know if this happened. I'm imagining that maybe Lot could have stormed into Abraham's tent and said, we got a problem. Now, how do you respond, by the way, when somebody comes at you like this? Usually when there's a conflict, we got a problem. We usually ratchet that up and we come back with a stronger response. Abraham didn't do that. Abraham could have said, we don't have a problem. You have a problem, little lot. You move along, little fella. I'm the uncle in this scenario. But he didn't do that. He was gracious. Look at his gracious reply in verse number 8. He says in chapter number 13 in verse number 8, Abraham said to Lot, let there be no strife between us. Let's don't fight. Why shouldn't we fight? We're family. You see it at the end? We're brothers. Let's don't fight. We're bro- what a gracious 
de-escalating, conflict-resolving, family-healing relationship. Let's don't fight. We're family. His response was not to ratchet up the anger. It was to reconcile the relationship. That was his heart. But he didn't just talk a good game. He didn't just say, let's not fight. He's not just gracious in his response. He's gracious in his solution. Because there has to be a solution. So look at what his solution is in verse number 9. He says in chapter 13, verse 9, is not the whole land before you? Let's separate. There's not enough room for us to stay together. So in verse number 9, in the middle of the verse, he says, if you go choose what land you want, if you will take the left, then I'll go to the right. If you will go to the right, then I will go to the left. What a gracious solution. He says, Lot, I don't want us to fight. You choose which place you would like to live, and I will take the other. Now, obviously, Lot is the greedy one in this situation, right? Whenever, whenever there's conflict, somebody, most of the time both, Somebody's being fleshly, carnal, demanding, unforgiving, harsh, sinful, whatever. Lot was being greedy because the Bible says that he looked down into the Jordan Valley and he chose the Jordan Valley because it was the most fertile land. It was full of date palm trees. It had beautiful meadows along the Jordan River where there was plenty of grazing territory. He said, I'll take that. And Abraham said, okay, I'll remain here in the hills where the water sources are, are sparse and the grass is not very tall. And, but I'll stay here with my flocks and herds. You go take the best. Now, is anybody in the room thinking, is he crazy? I mean, why would he do that? Why would he give Lot the choice? Why wouldn't Abraham do the natural thing of saying, no, I'm going to self-protect I'm going to self-provide. I'm going to make sure I get what's mine. Why was he willing to just be gracious and let Lot choose? Here's what I believe. Because remember, God had given to Abraham the entire land. He said it in chapter number 12. He tells him in chapter 12, verse 7, this is your land. Look at chapter 13, verse 15. We didn't read it, but look at it now. Chapter 13, verse 15. God says to Abraham, for all the land that you see... I'm going to give it to you and to your seed forever. God had given him the land. So I believe Abraham's response is this. You know what? It's all mine anyway. God's given me this land. Does it really matter where I live right now? Does it matter if I live in a tent in the hills for a while? Ultimately, God is giving it all to me and my descendants. And here's the thing, loved ones. If you know who you are in Christ, if you understand that your heavenly Father has provided and will provide everything that you will always need, if you are resting in the care and the promise and the provision of your God, then you don't have to be the taker. I'm going to get what's mine. I'm going to fight for mine and push others down so I can get mine and self-provide and self-protect. You don't have to do that. You can just be gracious because God will take care of you and he'll provide everything that you need. I think that's why Abraham did it. And by the way, you see this in the life of Jesus as well. In John chapter 13, you remember on the night that Jesus is arrested, you remember what he does? 
After their supper, he gets down on his knees. He puts a servant's towel around him. He begins to go around and wash the disciples' feet. And he's picking up and washing the feet, listen carefully, of people, men, who within hours will abandon him, will forsake him, will deny that they even know him, and will betray him for 30 pieces of silver. And he's washing their feet. He said, why in the world would he be so gracious to men who are going to be so unfaithful to him? Here's why. Look at chapter 13 of John. They'll put it on the screen. It says that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and knowing that he had come from God, and knowing that he was going back to God, rose from supper, made himself a servant, and washed their feet. You see, Jesus knew who he was. He knew why he had come. He knew what it was getting ready to happen. And he knew that he was going to ascend back to the Father. And so he could just be gracious and serve those men because he knew that he had come at the Father's will and he was living in the Father's perfect will. If you know who you are in Christ and you walk into a family conflict, you don't have to fight for your way every time. You just trust in the Lord and be gracious. And you'll bring blessing. Number two, if you want to bring blessing in a season of family conflict, do what Abraham did. Here it is. When Lot was worldly, Abraham remained righteous. When Lot was worldly, Abraham remained righteous. Now, can we, can we agree that if every person in every relationship was always Walking in the Spirit, in obedience to the Word of God, loving and kind and gracious, we would never have conflict. Am I right? There would never be a conflict because we would all just love each other in the Lord and, and there would be no reason to fight about anything. But the fact is, that's not us. We don't live like that all the time. We battle with the flesh and we battle with temptation. And here's the truth. Every, every moment that there is a conflict in our relationships, that conflict is sourced in our own sin nature every single time. Now, it might be one person who's doing all the sinning and the other's a victim. That's certainly possible. It's not likely, though, because we're all sinners. And so usually there's enough to go around. But the fact is, if there's conflict, it is sourced in our own nature, our sin nature. And Lot certainly had a sin nature. And he was living with a lustful, worldly view of life. Verse number 10 of chapter 13 tells us, when Abraham said, you choose the land, he lifted up his eyes and looked to the plain of Jordan. It's the Jordan Valley, well watered everywhere, all these beautiful meadows. This was the place to be. Verse 10 says, he looked at it. And verse 11 says, he chose it. He took it. Nothing gracious about Lot. Nothing deferring about Lot. He saw it and he took it. I have a friend in Israel who for years uh, has told me, he's, a, he's an Arab Christian friend of mine, and for years he said to me, Brother Jim, my mother tell me all my life, my mother say, be careful about hungry eyes. You have hungry eyes. You look and you want. He looked and he took. 
Does that sound familiar to you? Genesis chapter 3. Serpent comes into the garden, says to Eve, can you not eat of every tree of the garden? And she says, well, we can eat of every tree except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, we can't eat of that. We'll die. And he said, you're not going to die. God's lying to you. And then the Bible says this. She looked at the fruit. She saw that it was pleasant to the eyes, pleasant to the taste, a tree that would make her wise. She saw it and she took it. Joshua chapter 7, Achan is the cause of a defeat that Israel experienced when they came into the land of of Canaan. They defeat Jericho. The next city they have to battle is Ai, tiny little place. No way they should lose, but they lost terribly because Achan had sinned. If you know the story, you'll remember at Jericho, they had been told to take nothing of the loot of that battle. And yet Achan, when he was rummaging through a tent, saw gold, a gold wedge, and some expensive clothing, and he took it and he stole it. And when they found out that it was Achan's sin that brought the problem to Israel, Joshua said to Achan, I think it's chapter 7, verse 21, what have you done? And you know what Achan said? I saw it, I coveted it, and I took it. Y'all following me? One more example, King David on his balcony on the city of David one night on the slopes of Mount Zion down below the house of Uriah and his wife Bathsheba was on the roof washing herself and the text says that David saw her and he took her be careful about hungry eyes when we live with a desire that I'm looking and what I look what I see I want to take this is what Lot was doing. And so he sees the well-watered plains of the Jordan Valley and he goes there. And the Bible says in verse number 12 and 13 that he began to live there and he pitched his tent, verse 12, he pitched his tent toward Sodom. But the next verse goes on to say, but the men of Sodom, the people in that city, they were extremely wicked and sinful before the Lord. But Lot leaned in towards Sodom. He was drawn by his eyes. He was drawn by his lust. He was drawn by his desire. He pitched his tent in that direction. It means that right up next to the border of Sodom, he was right there close, leaning in. And ultimately, his leaning in led him to be swept up in the sin of that city. If y'all are listening, both campuses, shout amen. Amen. Christian friend, hear your pastor. How is your life leaning today? Are you like Lot, leaning toward the world? I'm a Christian. I'm going to heaven, but I'm leaning as much to the world as I can. I'm so interested. I so want the things of this world. I have hungry eyes. Or are you like Abraham, who the text tells us in verse number 18, in the mountains, pitched his tent and built his altar and worshiped his Lord. He remained righteous. When someone in your family is being worldly, fleshly, carnal, sinful, You, if you want to be a blessing like Abraham, remain righteous. Thirdly and finally, if you want to bring blessing to a broken family relationship, we can learn from Abraham's example that when Lot needed rescue, Abraham remained redemptive. When Lot needed rescue, Abraham remained 
redemptive. We did not read chapter 14. You can read it later. Verses 1 through 10 describe a season of warfare in the Jordan Valley. There were various clans and city groups, city-states, nation-states that would form and they would, they would elect a king or a certain warlord among them would become the most powerful and they would fight against each other. And in chapter 14, verses 1 through 10, you have these five kings from the north who come into the Jordan Valley and they fight against the five cities of the Jordan Valley. One of those is Sodom, one's Gomorrah, and three others. And what chapter 1 will tell you is that in this fight, Lot is caught up in the battle. And he's taken captive. Look at chapter 14 and verse number 12. It says, They, these kings from the north, took Lot, Abraham's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom. With his, they took him and his goods and they departed. Lot, because he lived in Sodom, was taken captive. Here's a principle. Here's a principle. Listen to both campuses. If you're going to be greedy and have hungry eyes and, and be worldly, you're going to end up in bondage. I promise you. Every single time. And Lot did. He was taken captive. Well, a prisoner of war. Somebody, verse 13, comes to Abraham and says, your nephew Lot has been swept up by the kings of the north, carried from Sodom up into uh, the north part of the country. He's a prisoner of war. Let me ask you a question. If you had given to your nephew the pick of the land, and he picked the best land and left you to fend for yourself, if he had been uncaring and unkind and ungracious to you and taken the best of everything and left you to fend for what would, where you could survive, and you found out, well, he got taken captive, would you say, well, he made his bed? He can lie in it. That's what I probably would have said. You know, if you're going to dance in Sodom, bro, you got to pay the piper. <laughs> He's a big boy. He can handle it. He'll figure it out. We do that in conflicts. When, when someone that we love, this relationship is broken, 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 and then they go, oh, man, I've messed up. We're like, well, sorry, you did it. Instead of remaining redemptive and bringing all that we can to do to bring, doing all that we can to bring them home. Well, what did Abraham do? Verse number 14, I love it. You guys all love it too. This would make a good action movie. Verse 14 says, Abram heard that his brother was taken captive. He armed his trained servants who had been born in his own house, 318 men. He pursued these five kings unto the northern part of the land, which is, is at Dan. He divided himself against them, he and his servants by night. He smote them and pursued the survivors to Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus, into modern day Syria. He whipped them. These five kings that had just conquered five kings in the south, he goes, chases them down, and whips them. And then verse number 15, or verse 16, he brought back all the goods. He brought back Lot and all of his goods and all of the women taken captive and all of the people. He brings them back. He rescues them. Somebody ought to say, amen. Get them Lot or get them Abraham. He brings them back. Now, there's no, no mention in the text that, a, that Lot said, thank you, Uncle Abraham, you're such a blessing. Maybe he did, I don't know. But I do know that he went right back to Sodom. Because in chapter 19, he's going to have to be rescued from Sodom again. 
He went right back to his old ways. But Abraham remained redemptive. Hear me. If y'all listen, shout amen. If you want to bring blessing when your family's hurting, when you're in struggle, when you're in conflict, you be the person that remains gracious, that remains righteous, and that keeps the door open and will rescue that situation and remains redemptive. Abraham did what he could. You can only do what you can do. You can't control somebody else. They're going to do what they're going to do. But you be the one that brings blessing. And I might just close by saying to you that what Abraham did for Lot is in fact exactly what Jesus has done for us. Because there was, there was a broken relationship in our relationship with God. And like Lot, every one of us had been worldly. We had been greedy. We had been lustful. We had been sinners. And we had been taken captive by sin and Satan. Helpless to help ourselves. And yet Jesus, perfectly righteous, always gracious, and always redemptive, gave his life for us on the cross that he might come to us by his Holy Spirit and rescue us and carry us home. Amen? That is grace. Interestingly, by the way, one last thing i got to tell you and we're done, is that when you look at the end of chapter number 14 and verse number 18, when Abraham has now rescued Lot and they're all coming back down from the north part of the country, they're they're headed down to the southern part of the country, but they're going to walk through the Judean hills right past what is modern-day Jerusalem in the text, chapter 14, verse 18. It's Salem, Salem, the city of peace, Shalom, Salem, Shalom. They're coming right past Jerusalem. And in verse number 18 of chapter 14, look what happens. And Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem or the king of peace, comes out of Salem, out of what would be Jerusalem ultimately, and he brings to Abraham, if y'all are listening, shout amen, bread and wine. Now, bread and wine, what does that sound like? It's communion, right? Melchizedek serves communion to Abraham. And he says, blessed be God who has delivered you from your enemies. Hebrews 7 talks about Melchizedek as well. And Hebrews 7 says that Melchizedek is a priest, that he is a man who has no father, no mother, no beginning, no ending. But he he abides a priest forever. There are some people who believe that Melchizedek is just a man who was a beautiful type of Jesus Christ. And there are some people, I happen to be one of them, who believe that Melchizedek is, in fact, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And that Abraham, in in the work of redemption, goes to rescue his sinning nephew and bring him back home. And as he's coming back, I believe Jesus comes to him as the person of Melchizedek offers him communion and says, God has rendered this deliverance. And 2,000 years later, Jesus in the flesh would serve to his disciples bread and wine in that same city because he was going to give his life to rescue all of us from sin. My question is, do you know Jesus as your Savior? Have you come to a place where you've understood that you have been carried off by the enemy? You cannot save yourself. You are as helpless as Lot was. It's impossible for you to make your way back home, to be right with God, to resolve the conflict in your relationship with God. It's impossible. And only Jesus can do it. 
Just like Abraham had to go get Lot, Jesus has to come get you. And he's done it by his death and his resurrection and by giving his life for you. And if you'll trust in him, like Abraham, if you'll call out and believe his word and trust in him, he will save you.